Greetings, you're listening to Cantus Firmus. Um, I have a um, uh, something for you today. I, have, I know I haven't done a lot of new stuff in a while, at least on a, uh, for the podcast. Um, but I had a recent appearance on a podcast called The Mad Ones, where we get to talk about uh, Fight the Powers and weird stuff like angel sex. And uh, so uh, with their permission, uh, folks at The Mad Ones, uh, Cam and Jessica, I'm resharing it here with you guys. Um, other things are in the works, including a uh, Fight the Powers audiobook and uh, neat stuff like that. Also, working on a uh, commentary on Galatians, which uh, will be a little bit, a uh, little while to get done, but uh, but I'm in process. And so, anyway, a lot of new things going on. You haven't heard from me for a little bit, but I'm still here. And thank you very much. Enjoy it. You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. The only people for me are the mad ones. The world is filled with the boring and the barely conscious. The misery loves company. But we don't have to live this way. Jessica and I are here to talk to those the system rejects, to radicals and thought criminals. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing but push the boundaries of acceptable discourse. Those who stare reality in the face and dare it to be different. History isn't made by the timid, and fun is not had by the perpetually afraid. We are the Mad Ones. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your gosh darn I'm tired of watching horror movies host Cam Harless. And with me, as always, is your gave up on horror movies many moons ago and is now telling the masses the beauty of Hungarian mushroom soup hostess, Miss Jessica Green. That's so true. I'm really good. And you know what? Hungarian mushroom soup is really delicious. He's not lying. You guys need to try it. It goes on everything. You could put it on mashed potatoes. You could put it on hamburgers. It's really good. Take my word for this, please. Well, speaking of good tasting things, uh, I think you should probably, if you're listening to this, consider hitting up uh, Run Your Mouth Coffee at rymcoffee.com, trying Mm -hmm. their bourbon barrel aged coffee. Uh, If you use promo code THEMADONES, you get 10% off your order. And also, if you like meat, RighteousFelon.com. Righteous Felon has great beef jerky. My personal favorite, I think, is uh, Voodoo Chow because I'm Mm -hmm. a, a glutton for punishment. (laughs) Um, and, uh, they have a lot of very great beef jerky. And if you want to try that out, you can go to their website, rogersfellon.com and use mad ones, know the, and get 10% off there as well. But with that, this is an episode we've tried to plan two or three times, I believe. Finally. Like it's, it's, it's it's, finally here. It's finally here. And I finally feel that we have the right guests. I've prepared enough for it. We have the perfect avatar for the audience here, Jessica, who's going to ask all the questions that my that I wouldn't think of, and I'm, I'm excited about that. But we should bring in our guests. And so I'm going to start with their two. We have two heavyweights tonight. Uh, to start, uh, joining on us for the first time is a podcaster and author and a graduate student in theology. He's written articles for multiple, multiple, multi, multiple publications, I can't talk, and has written several books. If, uh, if you'd like to take a look on his Amazon author's page, it's there's so many things there. Um, he's the host of Cantus Firmus and the author of both Fight the Powers, What the Bible Says About the Relationship Between Spiritual Forces and Human Governments, and Unhitched, Why Jesus Can't Be Divorced from the Old Testament, Mr. Cody Cook. 
How you doing, Cody? <laughs> I'm doing great. Excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this. I, I try to fit so much into the, the the intro, and I have a second one, so this will be the longest intro episode that we've ever had. So so buckle in. Let me go ahead and get get Ryan <laughs> in here. Uh, rejoining the show is a a personal friend of mine, an ordained minister, a podcaster, a software developer, a father of five, and a man with very strong opinions based out of a great deal of passion, the author of the wonderful website, howtoprayintongues.com, and the host of Technoagorist. You know him, and you love him, Mr. Ryan Burgett. Howdy. Oh, Thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot to talk about. We've got a lot of ground to cover with you know, we have we have a good amount of time, but not nearly enough. I feel like if we actually did this subject justice, we would probably do five episodes or something like It'd be that. a podcast yeah. itself. Yeah. 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 The spiritual um, beings podcast. <laughs> but we need to get started on this because uh, one of the things that kind of interested me in making doing a show on this first and foremost was I read Michael Heiser's book. Um, the unseen realm. And that really started getting my wheels turning, making me think I need to look into the second temple period. It's very theologically dense and it's looking at the context that we've, a lot of us never knew, but those who are smart in the past have forgotten. And so there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the spiritual world. And then the secondary thing that made me go, I need to talk about this was actually when Michael Malice and Alex Jones were on Timcast on Tim Pool's show. Oh, yeah. And they were talking about clockwork elves in different dimensions and stuff like that. And I was like, it's crazy people are talking about this because I think I know what this stuff is. So to start, I think that we should kind of lay the groundwork. And also I should just say, uh, hi. I know that was a lot of words, but hi guys. <laughs> <laughs> hey Cam. Howdy. <laughs> um, we, I think we need to lay the groundwork and then we can get into the, the little niches and the little uh, points where we think it applies to today. Um, but let's start with Cody. You wrote uh, the book on a book on the subject. There are many, so it's not the book as far as I know, but Ryan read it and he said it was great. So I trust Ryan. Uh, I've, I've been reading through um, Michael Heiser's corpus for the last little while. And I just finished up his book on demons today. And so I've, I've got I've got some in there. But I thought that you would be a really great person to kind of start this conversation with, uh, which is what the question would be, what do we as Christians get wrong about the spiritual realm? And yeah. where do we start? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Heiser has some some great work on this and he's not you know, I think he's famous because he's sort of a popularizer. What he's talking about is stuff that's not um, um, new in the scholarly world. It's not something that Old Testament scholars are unaware of, uh, but it is different than I think what we're used to hearing, what we might see in, on television or, or here in church. Um, and um, so essentially uh, one of the, I think, largest, uh, most one that maybe how do I say this? One of the more significant differences, divergences that the Bible has from the way we look at uh, the spiritual realm is this notion of the divine council. And the divine council is is, is uh, reflected throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you read about it in Psalm 82. Um, I want to say Psalm 90. Um, and there are references elsewhere, but the Psalms give you some pretty interesting ones. And essentially the idea is that there are these lesser, what we might call divine beings. 
uh, or uh, some might even call them angels, even though it's not strictly correct. And they participate in God's rule over the earth. Um, and so what happens, <laughs> of course, over time is that you have uh, these rebellions that uh, in heaven uh, with these spiritual beings who get called Elohim or gods or sometimes sons of gods, sons of God. And uh, in that rebellion, um, they basically fail to do the job they've been tasked to do. And one of those jobs uh, for some of these sons of God um, are to rule over the earth. And so uh, at Babel, you have this division of nations uh, and you read about that in Genesis 11. But what you don't read about in Genesis 11, but you do read about in Deuteronomy 32, uh, is that God, when he divides the nations, he divides them up according to these sons of God. And so this idea uh, gets uh, run, it's, sorry, it's in the Old Testament, but it also is all over the intertestamental literature, the stuff that happens between the Testaments, and it's reflected in the New Testament as well. Um, and so, uh, so far so good, that's essentially what Heiser is, is really wanting to emphasize, and one of the major things that Heiser is wanting to emphasize. Uh, one, one place that I sort of go that's a little bit different, it's not something he doesn't say, because he does say it, but he doesn't say it as explicitly as I do, which is that if there is this connection between negative spiritual forces and states or nations, uh, then that also means that Christians should be very, um, uh, so what I'm looking for, uh, wary, <laughs> wary, maybe is a good word of political power, right? Because it's, it's in a sense connected to something that's outside of the kingdom of God. Well, and that's, that's one of those conversations people have. One of the conspiracies is lizard people or reptilians. And so when I've heard this in the past, obviously the way that they talk about it is very wrong. But there was one very famous reptilian that was written about in Genesis 3 uh -huh. who kind of brought all of humanity down and, and deceived them. And uh, I think that what's interesting about part, part of the interest in this is the, um, the semantics. Because you, when you're reading through – and I, I saw this today when I was looking up um, di these different verses, especially Psalm 82. And you have – the I, I have the New King James version, and then I look through a bunch of different versions of the Bible to kind of see how they parse out this this verse. Which, if you read New King James version, it's God stands in the co congregation of the mighty; He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And so there's this this very verse where it's it says in at least New King James. Uh, gods, mm -hmm. because it's the same word. It's the plural f form of the word um, Elohim. So there's, which is an interesting thing because Elohim's not a, I think that's one thing that people, especially in the Mormon world, uh, get wrong that Elohim is a proper name for God when it is a title or a description of a heavenly being. So yeah, I mean, Elohim is one of those words that you'd call polysemous, uh, and that's that's just a $10 word that means um, it can admit of different meanings depending on the context. So sometimes it's used almost like a name for God, but it's also applied to other gods as well. It's essentially a plural form of uh, um, Eloah, which means it's like a singular form of God, um, but it also be, begins to be used as a title for Yahweh, which is the, the name of God in the Old Testament. Yeah. And it was as, as I was going through the different versions, it's like you hit that verse where it says, uh, and, and I looked at the complete Jewish Bible where it says uh, he stands there with the Elohim. And then in, in brackets, it says judges, which I think is, you know, a, a good addition. But if you look in some of the other ones, like uh, NIV has 
quotation marks around gods. And then other versions will use completely different words. And it's because I think the translators were very uncomfortable with the language that was used in that time period. And I mean, (laughs) I can see why. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, essentially one of the things that, that we, we suffer from in this age is, um, well, you could call it a, a kind of a jealous monotheism where we don't want to admit that there could be any other divine kind of beings, even though the Bible talks about them, um, which is not non-monotheistic. There's only one God who is the creator of everything and everything else is created. So that puts him on one side of the divide and everything else on every, the other side. Um, but I think the other thing is in the West in particular, um, we, we're uncomfortable with supernatural things. And so we're always trying to pick off as many supernatural things we have to believe in as possible. And so Mm -hmm. if we can get it down basically just to God and uh, maybe a few references to angels, we're okay with, um, you know, we're we're happier with that. Um, and, and so I I think we're uncomfortable with this idea that, that it's, there's a more complex vision of, uh, what we might call the divine or unseen realm, uh, than, Mm -hmm. than we'd like to think. It's very interesting. Um, I've been hearing a lot about, um, the book of Enoch lately. Mm-hmm. And um, I am told that I should avoid this to keep away from it, that there's nothing really of value to be had there, that it's sort of mysticism that's um, based on Christian ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I can't help but think of it while I'm listening to you talk in that um, it is a book that references sort of otherworldly spiritual beings and is very much rejected by sort of like mainstream official sources. Can you speak a little bit to that? To the Book of Enoch? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And um, so so you're Eastern Orthodox, right? I am. Yeah, which but, I know that. But newly, I do not speak oh, okay. for them. I'm very newly Orthodox, yes. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, I, I know that First Enoch would not be in the, the traditional Eastern canon, um, yes. but you can find it in the Coptic canon. Um, right. So uh, yeah, so the, the Book of Enoch is an important book, uh, if only for two reasons. Uh, one is because it fills in this gap between the Old and New Testament and gives us a sense of what people uh, around the time of Jesus were thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. And the second reason is, is it built upon that. It gives us some insight into what the apostles were thinking because they reference it. Uh, Jude even cites it. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily mean that we need to see it as scripture, but we do need to respect right. its place as informing the worldview of the New Testament writers and people who lived in the New Testament. Okay. So, and, and as far as what it says, if we want to talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah. So its relevance to this issue is that um, it develops an idea in Genesis 6. So we, we talked about uh, this divine rebellion that happens with the angels who are supposed to be over the nations and they do a terrible job and God judges them for it. That's that's that reference to Psalm 82. Uh, but there's another divine rebellion that's referenced in Genesis 6 where um, the sons of God come down and have sex with human women. And the results of that are what are called the Nephilim. So the, these progeny that are sort of semi-divine, semi-human. Um, and uh, Jude, so we don't have that, there's not much that's said about that specific thing. It's really just a verse in Genesis that's kind of odd, but we do read about Nephilim in, in other places in, in the Old Testament. And we read about mm-hmm. these giant clans that uh, Israel is coming up against when they're trying to uh, take Canaan, right? Um, and Goliath is also from one of the regions where the Nephilim were supposed to have been known. So Goliath is an example of a Nephilim. Um, so, uh, Enoch though does, I think, develop these ideas a little bit more, makes them a little bit more explicit. 
Um, and I think for that, he's not the only one. Uh, you also read it in, in Jubilees, for example. Um, but so when um, Jude quotes um, uh, Enoch, he also references this idea of a divine rebellion where angels are being held in chains for a sin that they have uh, committed where they've gone after strange flesh. And <laughs> there's only one example I can think of in, in the Bible of angels going after strange flesh, and that's in Genesis 6. Well, and, right. and, and of course, in the, in the inverse. Canon. What's that? In Judah's canon? Well, that's yeah. what I was pointing out. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. you, can, you can point out that, you know, the book of Enoch isn't generally accepted as canon, but sure. Jude is, you yes. know, and, and they're mm -hmm. quoting from that. So that, yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, though, is because if you if you look, if you read throughout the whole Bible and you see this this Nephilim passage, which a lot of, like they there's a lot of argumentation because people are uncomfortable with the spiritual realm and with with this short verse. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting is if you also look in Genesis at the um, the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, it's the inverse of uh that nephilim story because it's hu humans going after strange flesh and god that, doesn't like that at all <laughs> that's true and, and actually jude uh interestingly enough um does compare and contrast what happened at sodom and gomorrah with what happens with the angels so to quote jude uh that's okay <laughs> yeah. uh verses six and seven the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there's there is he's making a comparison here. So whatever happened at Sodom and Gomorrah is very much like what happened uh, at um, uh, well, I guess you could say at Herman, but basically where, where whatever it is that these angels came down, these sons of God came down and had sex with human women. Yeah, I um, generally sorry. referred. Go ahead. Sorry, every time I talk, someone else is talking. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, uh, I generally refer to the Nephilim as demonic half-breeds, even though obviously the sons of God weren't, uh, aren't the same as demons. You know, they're not the messengers. But yeah, either way, if you hear me refer to demonic half-breeds, I'm talking about the Nephilim-type weirdo, genetically modified, partial human creatures. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, the Nephilim demon connection... Uh, in the second temple period is very interesting because their, their idea of what demons were like the, with using the word demon uh, were the um, disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim. Yes. Yeah. Broadly speaking. Yeah. So are yeah. we laying the groundwork here sort of to say that um, these things are talked about in these ancient books, be they, uh, literary interpretations such as the Book of Enoch or the scriptures themselves indicating that we exist in a realm of spiritual beings even to this day? Uh, so I, I would say yes. Yeah. Um, um, so I don't know. I, I've heard other people make a connection that I, I'm not comfortable with uh, exactly, but uh, trying to say that um, um, there's this kind of new world order goal that has to do with making other hybrids sort of like what we saw in Genesis six. That's not what I would say, but I do think it's at least in Genesis six and we have to discuss it there. Mm -hmm. Well, and it continues into the new Testament where they talk about the powers and principalities and the God of the earth and all this other stuff. 
which is yeah and i think that's more in reference to the other rebellion rebellion so we have really three rebellions in genesis chapters one through ten the first is the reference to the serpent three divine rebellions rather the reference to the serpent um which ezekiel and isaiah inform us is this uh um son of god uh cherubic whatever creature who's a, who's um there in the divine council or in the throne room and wants to make himself out to be god uh so that's the rebellion we read about in genesis 3. We have the Genesis 6 rebellion, which is where sons of God come down and have sex with women. And then we have uh, this other rebellion um, that's in Genesis 11, but it's not explicit there. It's, it's more explicit in later passages like in Deuteronomy 32. And that's the rebellion uh, where, or, uh, well, God gives the nations over to these angels and then they rebel. Um, and so uh, that is something we still read about in the New Testament. Essentially, what Jesus is trying to do, his mission is to reclaim the nations from these um, uh, beings that are in rebellion to God who are over the nations. Um, and so we read about that explicitly in Daniel 10, I think, where uh, it talks about the, the prince of the kingdom of Persia and the prince of the kingdom of Greece. And these are angelic beings that are fighting for supremacy. And so these are all things that are happening behind the scenes uh, that issue in an outcome in the world that we live in, right? Um, and so what Jesus is trying to do now is, you know, these nations have been given up. He's given, chosen Israel as a special people, but Jesus comes and is trying to reclaim the nations and bring us back in. And the way we do that is through the, the proclamation of the gospel. So one and, thing that you pointed to in your book, but yeah. you didn't say explicitly, is like you, you just hinted at eschatology, mm. but you didn't, you didn't come down hard, you know, on, on anything. Um, would you say that the powers and principalities have been defeated like they were defeated by jesus and they're done for so you wouldn't see them today because that's a little bit like what you sounded like a minute ago that's or, kind of are they what i was asking yeah yeah we, no I, I would not say that so what what i would okay. say is sort of like how jesus defeats defeated death on the cross but we still have right. yet to see that fully in its fulfillment right um mm -hmm. there's kind of a now and not yet sense to it that their right. days are numbered. Um, it's it's as good as done, but we're still living in this world where these beings exist. Uh, Some principalities. Yeah, you got it. Pa Paul talks about them after the cross, right? Uh, and it's all all throughout the book of Revelation, which may be the last book in the Bible that, that's written. Um, so yeah, that's all there. Psalm eighty two says that God will destroy them; that they will die like men, even though they're gods. Um, but that hasn't happened yet. I think it's really interesting that. Um, we, we you talk about and you know the bible talks about how the different states and nations were apportioned to a different sons of god according to the number of the sons of god and then when you're looking at human history you see all of these different gods pop up so you've got odin and thor you've got uh vishnu you've got shiva you've got um all of these which some of them still they all, they all still exist in the people's minds in some sense. But what's interesting, in, in my opinion at least, is that after the cross and after Jesus did what he did and the gospel went out into all the world, like Ragnarok came to the gods of the Norse pantheon. They, they lost their power. There's some people who are still heathens and still do this and that. But as a whole, they were dealt a huge blow and things started going in a different way. And I think that if you look at certain other, uh, like, except for Hindus, they, they just kept going strong. But um, if you look at some of the other religions that come around now, it all feels like desperate grasps to deceive. 
rather than easy deception like it used to be. So, I mean, you know, you had Thor and you, you had the story of him beating the giants to get his hammer back. And people were like, oh, that's where thunder comes from. Awesome. And now people are like, oh, well, this doesn't work. And they it seems like those who wish to take power, they have found since the, resur- the uh, cross and the resurrection that they have to utilize the framing and the wording of Christianity in order to make any sort of headway. And I, I mean, I could name names of different religions and, and cults. I don't want to offend any people that I love, but there are there are definite cults out there that in order to to woo the people and to deceive the people have taken Christianity and changed it and changed the Messiah figure. And even right now, I read I read this weeks ago, but there was a, another article that came up today about uh, some ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, and the, the head rabbi. The, the rabbi of rabbis says that he's in talks with the Messiah in person now and that the, the Jewish Messiah is on his way. And so it's just, all, there's all sorts of stuff going on, but they can't do it the same way they used to be. And I think that that is a huge win. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think though, one thing I will say is that they're... Um, that that kind of that line of thinking also opens the door for this idea of of counterfeit Christ's right that there is a, mm-hmm. a kind of a deception that happens which is one thing I, I do talk about a little bit in the book which is that we have this kind of nationalistic God that because we can make some historical claim to Christianity uh, as a country or because we uh, can you know look at our percentages and say hey look at that we're a Christian country if you go by the numbers um, that that means that 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 whatever America does is okay <laughs> or that uh, to be patriotic is the same as to serve God, right? And so um, I, I think sometimes that kind of, um, you know, Satan masquerading as an angel of light thing uh, can be, you know, in some ways more dangerous maybe, um, because I think we think that we've got it and we're close enough and we understand it and and we're getting it wrong. <laughs> I agree. Makes me, makes me think of uh, screw tape letters, you know? Sure. Where, yeah. Wormwood said, or is it, no, to Wormwood. Yeah, it's where the mentor says, "All okay, right, now don't don't go straight on. You know, don't be well, don't be what they know is wrong. Instead, you know, be like, you know, use what they know is right in order to bring them in. So they just kind of go along. Sure, like, the enemy's smart enough to not just show themselves as nowhere the opposite. It's like, no, 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 we're just like you. We're all in this together, guys. And then just eh, just move you off to the side. Sure, yeah, change your trajectory." Yeah. Well, th- th- and that there's a great section in there too, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian pacifist myself, but I, I love this, that Lewis is not, but he still uh, is, is able to acknowledge uh, the way that these sort of political causes can become the thing for us. Right. And uh, um, so when he's giving advice to the, the demon tempter nephew, uh, he says, you know, I, you know, let's think a little bit about whether or not we want to make him a patriot or a pacifist, because, you know, what's going to be the most effective to turn him away from Jesus. <laughs> oh, that's, that's very well done. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Great book. <laughs> also fellow pacifist here. Excellent. <laughs> so we have talked to a couple of different people over the last few weeks and months about things like psychedelics. And like I mentioned with Tim pool, um, they talked about DMT and the clockwork elves. And so one of the things that like, I don't mind if, if you're going to, I, you're not held to my standards. 
if you're if you're not a Christian. I'm not I'm not there to tell you what you can or can't do. You're not in my not necessarily in my tribe. You're not someone I I can judge in that way. So I'm not going to go and do that. But I've had to I feel like I've had to mention in little ways here and there that the these beings that if you believe in them or not, I, I they're there. Uh, but these beings are there to deceive you, to pull you away from life, to pull you away from God, to pull you away from even from the ideal as far as you could possibly get from it. And so people talk about these spiritual experiences with um, hallucinogens. And so I always throw in there, hey, be careful. You may be dealing with spiritual beings <clears throat> when you hit when you hit these levels of euphoria, these levels of um, ecstasy with these these drugs or plants, but you truly need to be careful because I haven't met a clockwork elf. I haven't met uh, God in the ground or in on the couch or up in a tree, but I feel like the the rare story is the story when my dad's friend took mushrooms, climbed up a tree and came down, said he had accepted Jesus, and then he never touched any drugs ever again. That's a good story. But I think most of the time, if you are not seeking God, and I think there are better ways to do it than hallucinogens, but if if you do that, you are putting yourself into a place of vulnerability. You have vulnerability to be deceived, a vulnerability to have someone who looks very beautiful and shines like like gold and stones and precious jewels who will tell you there's this way to go or this is this is this is how the world works and i i just say i just feel like i need to say it for the crowd if you do this be wary you may not be experiencing god you may be experiencing something very different but i want to talk about that do you have any thoughts on that Cody, like in, in that world with the psychedelics, do you have any thoughts on that in particular? I was just, when you started, I thought of the, the Joe Rogan thing where he's like, that's crazy. You ever try DMT? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, you know, I I don't have a strong opinion about it. I'm not, I'm not someone who, um, who's a big drug user or anything. I, uh, I spot in high school, but only for political reasons. And, um, (laughs) um, (laughs) But, you know, so I, I've always sort of had a tendency to think that, um, you know, I value my ability to, to perceive the world and, and understand it, my critical thinking skills. So it's never been something I've been too interested in. Uh, but what I would say is um, I would not uh, encourage somebody um, to follow uh, the guideline or the advice of anything, anyone that talks to them um, or that it's con- <laughs> that talks to them when they're in, in a, uh, uh, in a what, what's the word I'm looking for? When they're high, when they're having a, when they're having a trip, because that's you know, even if it's not a demon, it's not like you know, it's not a real person that has quality advice. It's something that your brain is conjuring. <laughs> so, um, so I, I would just be wary of that anyway. One of the interesting things about DMT specifically is that most people, when they do it, have the exact same experience. Hmm. Which you know, that's not necessarily true for mushrooms or any other kind of hallucinogen. But with DMT, the hallucination you get from it is pretty universal. And um, one aspect of it is, of course, you see this sort of latticework rainbow pattern. And then that pattern opens up into a room, that room opens up into a tunnel, you go down the tunnel, and eventually you come to meet these beings, these beings that are made out of light, and they try to communicate with you. 
um, when me and my friend Dustin, who is you know gone on to the next world, uh, we did we stayed up all night doing DMT one night, and he got we got down to the place where there were beings trying to talk to us. And I was like, nope, that's it. I'm out. It freaked me right out. And I didn't want to do DMT ever again after that. Dustin was like, I'm going to keep going back in over and over again because he wanted to talk to those things. But I just got a feeling right away. I don't want I don't want to talk to you. I don't, I don't need whatever you have. Like I, I had a, I think they call it discernment, a moment of discernment with that. Or just like, um, I don't think I need to talk to the beings inside the DMT. There's not going to be anything good that comes out of that. But what's interesting is that everybody seems to have a universal hallucination with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's interesting. I've heard, a lot of, I've heard a lot of people with weird experiences like that, you know, watch documentaries like Darren Wilson's documentaries, some other ones. You know, where they interview a lot of people coming out of, you know, some of that stuff and they mm -hmm. the wildest stories. But so many of those things where they're in that compromised state, that's where something's like, hey, let's talk, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. depending on where they're at, they might they don't have that discernment often. And then they'll yeah. get into something that they shouldn't be into. You yeah, know? that's not something so. I definitely recommend to people to do, because um, you do go into an unconscious state. So you know, you're, you're out of your senses completely. Like you, you need people there to put a pillow behind you because you will fall backwards. You need, you know, so that's not, um, even from a physical standpoint, a very safe kind of activity to be doing for sure. Yeah. Don't I also Walter think white nearby Walter white. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I always think of when I think of that being that compromised of a state. Yeah. yeah you are definitely you compromised. Back. <laughs> um, I, I've heard of people. I don't know if it was DMT. No, maybe it wasn't DMT. Uh, what's um, what is it that, that they say gets mixed into uh, drugs all the time, and just a little bit will kill you or whatever? Fentanyl. 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 I, I've heard of. I mean, people using it in psychiatric situations and it having some benefit. I mean, I guess my my general attitude toward things, you know, is you know, if, if something has a medicinal purpose, and I, and I, or even if you know you need a beer to help you relax or something, or not need one but want one. Um, I think that's fine, but I, I would, yeah, I would, I would be really wary about people trying to get uh, ideas for how to live their lives from, from a substance that they take. Yeah. And I think that really what I'm cautioning against isn't like microdosing um, psilocybin for depression or mm -hmm. uh, this, or, you know, any kind of medicinal thing. What I'm really pushing against is this idea that there is a way to reach God without mm. going to God. And I think that that's a dangerous thing because it leaves you open to whoever opens the door. So I, I think there is a, um, a view of Christianity from the modern perspective that very much sees it as um, sterile and um, cold and demanding. Um, and talking just on this topic a little bit, you realize that there's a lot of um, things that don't get discussed about Christianity just in the first like 20 minutes of this episode, you guys brought up a bunch of stuff that I've never heard of before. So there is this sort of like nuns and white linen view of Christianity, very hardcore, hit you with a ruler if you do something wrong. And then there's this whole like deep spiritual realm that doesn't get talked about at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are people sort of um, craving mystic, not mystical, maybe that's the wrong word, but um, craving knowledge about word. the world. 
yeah, that that's outside of their regular experience. It doesn't come fair. from the harshness, the harsh adults, the rule uh, masters, you know, things of that mm-hmm. nature. They're looking for God on a um, emotional level. And that's why they're attracted to things like meeting God through drugs or music or any of the various other paths that are offered. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, talking about the, some of the stuff that's maybe new to a lot of people. um, One thing that getting into this has helped me see um, is that the, the big story that I call Christianity is, is kind of more complicated than I thought it was. And there's a lot more to it. And I mean, a lot of these uh, details too are um, intended to be somewhat polemical, right? So there are ideas that are like this that you can find in other pagan religions that exist around the same time as Israel, but they invert them in really interesting ways. Can you tell us um, real quick, what does polemical mean? Polemical, sorry. So a polemic is like uh, uh, something that's written in order to uh, disprove or criticize something else. Okay. And so uh, in particular, you have in in the Mesopotamian world, the the stories of the Apkalu. Um, And these Mm -hmm. are these um, divine type beings that um, are supposed to be giving wisdom to uh, the political leaders and priests who are so who are close to power. And they also uh, some of these Apkalu mate with humans, and then you have these sort of semi divine beings. And so there's this notion of um, kingship being associated with this right to rule because they have a special insight, a special wisdom that comes from these beings. Um, and so for for uh, Mesopotamian world, these ideas, this is a good thing, right? And and but what you read in Genesis six is, uh, you know, in those days uh, when the sons of God went into the uh, daughters of men and Nephilim were born, and then the next verse is that there was much evil on the world and God wanted to destroy it. And so there, there's a very different view of, of what these sort of, well, you know, some people would even would question whether the spiritual beings exist at all, and if it's just meant to be a a way of sort of offering this criticism of the ancient Near East, uh, which I don't go that far. But I think what's interesting is if you do kind of have that perspective, um, it becomes maybe even a stronger criticism, especially when it comes to the political stuff. So, um, if if my kind of literal view of the idea of uh, sons of God, de- demonic, what you might call demonic power behind political power is really just a metaphor of some kind. Um, then what that means is that once we, you know, it, it, so if I'm right, it's just spiritual stuff. All we got to do is get the spiritual stuff out of the way. Then we can trust political power again. But if what the authors of the Bible are saying is that political power is inherently demonic. Um, then I think that's even a stronger statement than what I'm saying. Um, so I, I <laughs> okay. think whether you have a spiritual view or a, uh, you kind of metaphor, making a metaphor, you still have this problem with political power. That's um, pretty, pretty, I think difficult to come around. So can I, can I back you up and ask you some, I've, I've been listening intently to try to get my footing here because this is way outside of my normal experience. So I want to kind of back up um, to some of the things you said at the beginning and see if I understand them. First of all is the phrase, the sons of God, what believe, what, what leads you to believe that this refers naturally to demonic entities as opposed to like human beings being the sons of God, because are we not made in God's image? How are we not referred to in that way? Or what, what, where can I go to understand this? Sure. So sons of God in the old Testament uh, has a different meaning in the new Testament. So in the new Testament, we become sons of God because we are united to Jesus, who is the God man. 
Okay. Right. So, mm -hmm. but in the, in the old Testament, you have something a little bit different. So the references we have to sons of God are like that example, for example, Deuteronomy 32, eight and nine, where it says that God fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Uh, um, let me see here. Other examples. I'm pulling up my, uh, my book to see if I can, so I don't forget them. Uh, in Job, for example, Job 1, 6, Job 38, 7, they're referred to as sons of God. Uh, Genesis 6, 2, which we talked about, that's where the sons of God come into the daughters of men. Uh, on that point, I would argue that whatever daughters of men are, sons of God is meant to contrast it. Mm -hmm. And so that, along with this other usage that we see for the phrase sons of God, uh, tells me that these are angelic beings that we're, that we're looking at. Right. Okay. And of course, in the beginning of Genesis, God says, let us make mankind in our image mm -hmm. and you know michael heiser and others they'll point out and say well that's because these sons of god were sons of god are sons of god they were created in some way in god's image and god said okay, okay let's do let's create some more beings in our image like you know? us mm -hmm. it, yeah so so that's what god created we are in god's image when i read that the sons of god when i read that um let us make man in our image I always thought that that referred to um, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they are a, a trinity. So let us, the trinity, make man in our image, the trinity. And so you guys are saying that that actually refers to beings outside of the trinity, that God is making um, mankind in the image of something other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? So I would say yes, because uh, the verb is plural. Um, part, that's partly why I'd say yes. Um, but we also have references, for example, in Job, where it says that the sons of the, the, the sons are there, the sons of God are there when God creates um, different elements of the universe. Not there before the universe comes to exist, but when different things are coming into a play during those creation days, uh, we read that the sons of God are there present with him. Um, and I so I, although I would say... I like the idea that we're talking about the Trinity, although I would say that that's kind of speculative, right? To say, well, I'm going to make this about the Trinity when it's not totally clear from the context, that's what you should have in mind. Um, but I do think other Old Testament passages talk about this divine counsel idea, which I, I do think would make the most sense as, as the way to understand it. Mm -hmm. I have not come down hard myself, but what I've been reading with Michael Heiser and other things, you know, that's what, I mean, and what Cody wrote. Yeah. That's what, I don't know, makes you think. So, and just like I said, I've only converted to Christianity in the last two years. So I don't claim mm. to be like knowledgeable about this. And really I'm asking from a, a place of ignorance. And so please understand that I'm just trying to draw out um, what you mean when I'm asking about this. Of course. So if you, yeah, you, if yeah. you say it's speculative, then um, what leads you to believe that what you are speculating it to be is what it is? Because example, I might not know what you're talking about. Oh, the example of let us make man in our image? Yes. yes. Yeah. And, and, and I I know that you're not being, uh, you're not trying to, to be a jerk or anything, but you, you can right, even right. challenge me angrily Such if you want to. I don't care. I'm all right. No, I don't, I don't, I don't, <laughs> want, I, I don't want to. I'm just We're trying to understand. Assume yet. the worst intent. Yeah. Oh, do. Yeah. <laughs> so what I would say is we do have this reference to let us make. And so then the question becomes, so it's a plural verb, which is, which is where we get that. Um, uh, in, in Hebrew, uh, says Elohim, let us make man. Okay. So then the question is, why is it a plural verb? And uh, then you have to sort of fill it in. The context doesn't help you that much because we don't really see much in there. 
you could say, well, maybe this is the Trinity. Although I would tend to think that if we're talking about the Trinity, maybe we would see a singular verb. Um, if, if that's if there's trying to be a kind of a three in one idea that's being suggested here. Um, but obviously somebody is there with Elohim, with God. Um, and so what I would say is I think the best explanation for that would be um, this divine counsel idea that we see throughout the Old Testament. Okay. But, but once again, I'm also being a little bit speculative, but I think that's the best answer where I am right now. It just, the reason that I have trouble with that, I think, is because when I think of God referring to himself, he wouldn't refer to us being uh, his creations, being the angels and the other things that he created, whereas he, his son, and his Holy Spirit are us. That's him together. That, like, um, linguistically, that actually does make more sense to me, that he wouldn't refer to us and our in terms of his other creations as opposed to his son and his Holy Spirit being that he his son um and and rather sorry rather the holy spirit proceeds from him and is sent by his son to do things and so mm -hmm. that is I, I i guess i'm having a little trouble i i agree with you that it's linguistically odd yeah um so it it would have to be a theological opinion like it wouldn't yeah, I, I, I can't come down on it too hard. So I mean, right. we do have this other um, us language in the Babel story, Genesis 11. Lord mm -hmm. said, behold, there when people, they all, they all have one language. Um, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Um, mm -hmm. So is are we to think that God does this by himself? Does he send these other uh, other beings to do it? Um, so it's kind of it's 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 tough to say because Genesis doesn't tell us explicitly. Um, but, but, you know, I think you could, you could probably come down on the other side, but once again, the text context doesn't tell us enough to be dogmatic. And yet so, the Bible does have the, the image of the divine council, which is what we started talking about at the beginning, which okay. is this picture of, you know, God, where he is, God in heaven, you know, surrounded by these divine beings. And mm -hmm. they talk about things together. God refers to us, you know, talking about the council refers to the sons Jehovah. of God. It talks... Job, exactly. So in Job, as well. so in Job, God refers to his creations as us. Well, they're literally in the room with him. So it's the What's idea the of them literally sitting together together. Well, yeah. So I, I understand it's, it's, about it's a God picture. So God being on the throne sense in that context, surrounded by cherubim and seraphim and those types of things. But what I guess I'm asking is in, in the book of Job, does he refer to those beings as us with him? Where's the passage, Cody? Well, the, <laughs> the references. The <laughs> so in so what I was actually going to look for is first Kings where there's the lying spirit that's sent because there's a divine council uh, image there. Yes. That's mm -hmm. the one I was thinking of as well. Um, because Job talks about the, the sons of God being there, but I don't remember if the us language is used, it might be first uh, Kings 22. Let me see here. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. The Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Um, I'm see if that us language is there. Cause I feel like it is. But I'm not well, there's definitely just... an interesting point. That point in King in first Kings. Yeah. First Kings 22 uh, is very interesting because there's a dynamic conversation happening within that. Because 
there is a back and forth on who's going to go and there's a decision that's made. And I think that that's kind of where the concept of the divine council being spoken to and making judgments and making decisions with God, just like he utilizes and talks to his people happens in first Kings. And thus the idea, the speculation as it were, uh, is that that would be the same since that's how it worked there, then it would also most likely work the same way in Genesis. Right. And it's worth pointing out also, like it's hard to hit on some of this stuff just in a, in a little podcast thing to throw out there because, you know, you read these books and they have whole chapters on this. Every mm -hmm. question you've asked so far, uh, Jessica, there's, there's whole big, really thick chapters, you know, going through all the looking at things historically, looking at the scripture, looking at, you know, how it all fits together. And mm -hmm. yeah, so we can do, we can do a little bit of that here, but even, I mean, I've read so much on this topic recently and I don't come away with very much concrete, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I well, come away why... with a lot more questions and yet some images well, yeah. and, and that's why I wanted to have more than one per more than me talk about this was because there are going to be things as I read through this, as I study the Bible some more that I grasp and I go, okay, that's important. Mm -hmm. And then you have something that's different that you feel like is, is important. You dig down in and on from there. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, I think that maybe I know, I think Cody has something to say, uh, but I have, I, I do want to kind of do some very simple conversation about, these different terms, because I think that that would help the layman more than anything is just yeah. kind of understand. The I'm coming at this from a complete layman's perspective. So like we kind of jumped right into it before anyone even explained to me what a divine <laughs> council was supposed to be. Are we talking about a council of angels? Are they made up of seraphim and cherubim? Like what, what are we actually talking about here? Like the first thing I could drill down into is this passage. Oh, I've heard that passage. But so that was the first thing I could get clued into here. But I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about when you say divine counsel. Yeah. What well, do you want? Do you want us to start there? Yeah, if you could. I mean, I know we it's we've been lot. talking for almost <laughs> an hour, and about. I got really confused before I started to dig. And so, okay. like, if we could maybe back up, start there, and then move up. Sure. I've been really chatty, kind of to start with. <laughs> Would you like to take this one? Well, I think that maybe the the first, I mean, we've kind of dug into the idea of the divine council somewhat. Do you think that there needs to be it needs to be more expounded upon? Okay, I guess. Can someone just we say, is it? Am I, am I correct in sort of my little um, blurb about it as to say the divine council is sort of a council of angels that God okay. sort of meets with? They're around a board table. In yeah. heaven. So <laughs> like, I think that I think that maybe one of the things that was really good about reading these books, about looking into this more, was that you start to understand that there's a hierarchy of beings that you have mm -hmm. to understand. And so angels are messengers. Mm -hmm. So these are these are the ones who um, go out and deliver the word of the word of the Lord. And then you've got the angel of the Lord, which that is maybe the most interesting part of Michael Heiser's book is examining the, the angel of the, the angel of Yahweh throughout the different um, instances that he shows up to Abraham, to Moses, to um, Joshua, 
and you've got these different points in, in time, I think that may be one of the more interesting things because it kind of draws out a Jewish understanding of, of the Trinity before Jesus was on earth. And so like there, there's a lot to it. And so I would say maybe we start with, um, I mean, we could start with God and then move out from there. <laughs> you always so, start with God. So uh, Yahweh, there are all these names. There's a lot of, we won't, we won't deal with the, the, the uh, conflict out there over different aspects of the Ugaritic texts and all of this other stuff. But um, who is God? What is he? And I think he's the uncreated creator. Um, mm -hmm. He is the one who started the, the whole deal. And he started by making spiritual beings, just like he started after later he made us and created the earth, which is uh, the world is his. It is the place where he resides. He created the Garden of Eden. And there's so much. It's so <laughs> much to start with. It's hard. It's hard because I could just continue talking. Um, but let's let's start with who God is and who who he created and why Eden is important. Do you think that's a good starting place, Cody? Sure. Do, do, you, do you want me to get that one? If, if you could start, yeah, I'll, I'll just throw st some stuff in. You wrote the book. I just read, read some books. <laughs> sure. Okay, so, um, yeah, so God is, is distinct from everything else as the uncreated creator, as you said. Um, so every pretty much every other religion in the world except for uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam uh, would be uh, would have a view of reality that you'd call like a continuity view, that everything is really kind of just uh, an ex we're all kind of made of the same stuff. The universe pretty mm -hmm. much always exists. The gods that come out uh, are are uh, they begin to exist at a certain time. They're made of the same stuff that everything else is made of. Um, and so the, the, what's different about the view that Israel comes up with um, uh, or is, is revealed to them uh, is that there is actually a, a transcendence that not everything is made of the same stuff that there is a creator who's before all things um, so then you you do have these this idea of hierarchy so we use the word angel to refer to good spirit beings and demon to refer to bad spirit beings um, and and I, I kind of use that shorthand in my book although I explain in a footnote that that might not be always the most technically correct Mm -hmm. um, so in the, in the intertestamental period, demon is pretty much used, uh, by the Jewish war in Jewish thought as these disembodied, uh, Nephilim, right. Um, and it, it's questionable whether that view is the view that the new Testament writers have, cause they don't make that explicit, but they do use the word demon to refer to these negative spiritual beings. So with what we call angels, angels are really just a class of, of, uh, spiritual being that are like messengers. Uh, okay. and as, Cam, as Cam had mentioned, there's one specific uh, uh, being who's called an angel or messenger of Yahweh, who's also identified with Yahweh. And so there's this really interesting kind of uh, pre-Christian look at Christ, where you have this person who's sent by Yahweh, who reveals Yahweh, uh, is distinct from Yahweh, but is also Yahweh. <laughs> yeah, um, the visible Yahweh. Yeah, and and. and in the intertestamental period, they refer to him as the second power in heaven sometimes, this idea of two powers in heaven, uh, which there's a great uh, scholarly book you can get on that too. But So then um, we talk about the cherubim, which um, is a word, cherubim, which is um, the language I think is borrowed, I want to say from Ugaritic, um, but it's kind of like this throne guardian. So it's this being that sort of um, um, 
surrounds the throne of, of the god and 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 is sort of like a guardian. Um, Satan is arguably referred to as a cherubim in uh, Ezekiel or Isaiah, either Isaiah twenty, either Isaiah fourteen or Ezekiel twenty eight. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, so so he may be one of those kinds of beings. So it's kind of a higher class of angel. Uh, seraphim are either different or another word for cherubim, depending on how you how you parse that. Um, so you also have these beings called the sons of God. And there may be some overlap there too, because if Satan's called a cherubim and he may be one of the sons of God at one point, uh, I don't know. So, <laughs> but the, the sons of God are the ones who are referred to in Genesis six, where they come down and have sex with women. And also in Deuteronomy 32, where we read that those are the ones that God gives the nations up to. Um, and so then when we get to, um, Psalm 82, we read that these sons of God have been given this charge by God to, to take care of the nations and to lead them and direct them. And they've done a terrible job. They've directed worship toward themselves. They have uh, dealt unjustly. They've created a really crappy world. Okay. Um, these are the, just to pause real quick. These are yeah. the fallen beings. The... So, yeah. So, yeah. So there's this question about the fall, right? So, um, when do... Uh, when do angels supposedly fall? Because we get this, we get that idea from Revelation, so Revelation twelve rather, um, but that's referring to an event that, in context, seems to be at the coming of Jesus, where it talks about the war in heaven and a third of the angels uh, being cast down, mm -hmm. right? So um, that, in, in the context of when it's written, written is it's after the birth of Jesus. But we sort of put that in the beginning of the whole thing. And we imagine this rebellion where Satan leads all of these angels and they get kicked out of heaven. Uh, and scripture doesn't make that clear. What scripture talks about is, is something different. Question. Yeah. Okay, because we see Satan tempting Adam and Eve in the garden. And yeah. this is clearly before the birth of Jesus. That is. So, right. So in this context, is he not fallen being when he's tempting Eve? He's fallen. There's a question of whether he brings He's anybody currently with currently falling. <laughs> well, so that, you, that, yeah, you think that's yeah, you, you could say that's his first act of rebellion. It's unclear, right? There's right. something that happens that um, I believe Isaiah, gosh, I should have Isaiah and Ezekiel up. Isaiah talks about, I think, where uh, this divine rebellion in Eden, where he wants to be, um, maybe that's Ezekiel, where he wants to be, uh, wants to be God. He wants to be the head of the divine council. And I think that language is even invoked. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there's a judgment against him because of that. Now, what's not clear is that he's taken all these other angels with him at that point. Um, what we see in Genesis, like I said, are these three rebellions. One is the rebellion of the serpent, uh, which is either happening in real time as you read it, or it's, you know, it's in that story or it's already happened and he is just acting out. Um or there's also then oh, sorry then there's the Genesis six rebellion with the uh, having sex with women and then there's the other rebellion where the sons of God who are charged with taking care of the nations fail at their job. Okay. Um, but sons of so yeah sons of God you we might call them angels so that people kind of understand what we're talking about in a broader sense based on language that we like to use although it might not be technically correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the things as I was reading this last book that really stuck out to me, and it kind of stuck out to me somewhat before, is the word that is used um, for 
serpent, which is Nachash, mm-hmm. is a word that is typically um, so it's also tied to seraphim or the the cherubim, and so this those were guardians. The the cherubim, to say it simply, uh, were guardians, and so there is this this idea that you could very easily see in the garden where this the serpent which is a spiritual being not a literal snake was there to protect and guard the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he turned and rebelled and instead pushed eve into eating the fruit and then adam as well and Mm -hmm. so it's there's this very interesting like we don't know a lot of this like there's a lot of stuff that's speculation but there is this very interesting narrative structure there that I think is very compelling that that was a moment when he was supposed to be there to guard and to protect the humans from doing the thing that would separate them and cause death. And instead he led them into it. Yeah. Your reference to the seraphim, I think you were talking about an etymological link there. Um, Seraphim means something like fiery serpent. Yeah. Yeah. Compelling is a good word uh, because, well, like you had mes- uh, mentioned, uh, Jessica, like Christianity seems so dull to people, but it's the, the you know, post-enlightenment Christianity. It's Christianity devoid of the spiritual stuff where it's just, mm-hmm. you know, like the Western culture, just the a list of rules, you know, a list of, of, of principles maybe, or, you know, but when, when you... I mean, or like, you know, Thomas Jefferson cutting the miracles out of his Bible, you know, mm-hmm. just to get to the the real stuff, you know, more or less the, the scientific thing. But that's not Christianity. I mean, it, you can be a Christian and still, you know, believe that kind of Christianity, like the more, I don't know, the, the, the boring kind of devoid way of looking at Christianity. But that's not biblical Christianity, you know, and it's, I mean, Judaism was, there's, Lots of spiritual stuff going on. Christianity was. The whole world is a spiritual place, you know? And, uh, yeah, there's definitely a case to be made that that's what people are looking for. That's why there's been lots of people moving back to, like, the Catholic Church, for example. You know, it's funny how, you know, the Protestant Church and so many others have moved away from spiritual stuff, you know, made it all scientific and, you know, shallow. And yet Mm -hmm. you, you have the Catholic Church who, you know, regardless of your opinion of these people, like they're casting out demons, you know, and they don't pretend no. this stuff doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. And yeah, if if someone really digs into Christianity, digs into the Bible, digs into what we have to work with, history, you know, like it is compelling. There is so much there. And a lot of it is speculation, but that's not a problem. Like that's that's mm-hmm. how you learn. That's mystery. how you grow. Yeah, mystery. And mystery is awesome. Mystery is what yeah. keeps life exciting. And mystery provides you know, some some wiggle room for Holy Spirit to work inside of you and kind of help move you toward toward the truth, you know? Mm-hmm. But if you just cut out all the all the other stuff, then yeah, you do get left with this kind of shallow husk of of a religion, you know, which, you know, that's not what our souls long for, I don't think. I think there's a lot of truth to that because um when I started to look into Christianity, my first place I went to were um, like mega churches. It was really easy. My town is replete with them. And they go in there, they play some rock music, they give you a Bible study, a feel, a feel good, 
you get a feel good and then you go home and um there's nothing of the uh the eucharist there's nothing of the the mysteries of the church of the early er, that the early christians participated in and i started to say well you know this is all well and good but um you know this seems like self-help it doesn't seem like religion and so i was attracted to the Eastern Orthodox Church, for example, because they acknowledge there are mysteries. For example, the Eucharist, you know, the, uh, the, the, the mysteries of how God works in our lives. So I do think there's room for mystery and that people do long for that because science doesn't explain everything about the world. Very much attempts to and it claims to, but it doesn't fulfill that, you know, deep human longing to say what, what's just beyond the veil. There's there's something beyond what I see. I feel that my bones, like I know that that's there. I recently heard an Orthodox priest um, on the radio talking about, they were asking him about Halloween. He said he didn't actually oppose Halloween because it was the one time of year that it made people actually like consider the spiritual realm. And, you know, although there's been a lot of, you know, fun and candy and other things thrown up around it, it is that one time of year where people consider death. The rest of the time we we flee from it we we run scared from the the very idea itself and on halloween we can think about ghosts and skulls and you know remember that we die and that there might just be something just beyond that veil of death so that's why i think this is an interesting conversation i just as someone who's quite new to christianity two years in myself you guys are talking about stuff that's way above my pay grade like <laughs> well, and yet it's I, fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating, yeah. So, with you coming in fresh, though, maybe it would be helpful for you to kind of ask some questions. You, you might be a stand-in for an audience member who this is kind of new to them too. So, what yeah. maybe is still a little bit confusing for you? Well, I suppose there are problems with, and I see what you were saying at the very beginning of the episode about translation. Because when I went and I typed um, Deuteronomy 32.8 into my Google, it says sons of Adam, sons mm -hmm. of man, over and over and over again. Whereas you guys are saying sons of God, sons of God, sons of God. Uh -huh. And I'm kind of like, okay, they're saying something different than what the, the Google box is telling me. Do, do, so, do, you want, do you want to know why? Why? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, let me pull up my... I have, a, I have a cool citation here in my book on this. I'm just going to try to pull it up. So, okay. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, which are a, uh, a very early Hebrew text that we have, mm -hmm. says mm -hmm. sons of God in Deuteronomy 32, 9. And, but the Greek Septuagint, which is, you may know about, which is a translation of the yes. Old Testament that was used in the time yes. of Jesus. Um, it reads the, uh, the angels of God. Okay, so then you get to the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text that dates to the Middle Ages, and it says mm -hmm. the sons of Israel. So mm -hmm. is God numbering the nations according to the sons of God, the sons of Israel, or the angels of God? And what I think is probably in something like this, you do. there's a science called textual criticism that tries to discern why there might be a difference in different manuscripts. And in this case, I think that we might want to appeal to something. First of all, we have to come up with a reading that would give rise to these three different readings. And second of all, we have to imagine why someone would want to change it. And I think uh, it could be clear why the uh, 
the medieval medieval Jews didn't like this idea is because they're trying to move more into a stronger monotheism view. But even they don't feel comfortable getting rid of it entirely. So there is an interesting thing that they're doing here where it's kind of a uh, like an inside reference. So the sons of God. So, OK, so you go to, to Babel. There's a Babel story. And then you read about the table of nations. These are the different nations that emerged out of Babel. They are listed as 70 in number. Um, and then there's a reference in uh, Exodus. Do I have it? Exodus 1.5, which gives the number of the children of Israel as 70. <laughs> so when, when the Masoretic text says that they're numbered according to the, the children of Israel, what number is that? Well, 70. Well, is there another? What's the significance of 70? What's well, also the number of the nations? So it's pointing still to the Babel story, but it's doing okay. it in an oblique way. Um, I think what probably happened is that the older um, Hebrew text in the Dead Sea Scrolls is the original one, Sons of God, and that's what the ESV has, has leaned on. Other translations don't like that, or they want to go with what the traditional Hebrew text is saying, or maybe they were around before the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Uh, and then I think the Septuagint is basically saying the same thing, but it's maybe weakening the force of it a little bit by saying angels of God. Um, so perhaps that particular uh, translator felt a little weird about talking about sons of God and wanted it to be angels of God instead. Um, so that, that's somewhat speculative, but I think what you're getting at, no matter which translation you take um, or which text you want to look at, you're getting the same thing, this idea of the 70 angels, the 70 uh, uh, actually, uh, in my notes here, I have a reference to a Palestinian Targum, which is a, an Aramaic translation, and the Targums tend to be very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They get creative, so they'll add little notes in their translation. And in the in the Targum, it says, he casts a lot among the 70 angels, the princes of the nations, with whom is the revelation to oversee the city. Even at that time, he established the limits of the nations according to the sum of the number of the 70 souls of Israel who went down into Egypt. And so it tries to put these two different things together. Um, and so anyway, it's, it's really fascinating. But basically, uh, I think that the the sons of God is is a much more obvious uh, and, and more. Uh, well, it's the one I would go with for a number of reasons and not just because of these textual reasons, but because when other Jews and Christians read this passage, they get the divine count, the divine council idea, and the sons of God idea, and what you what, what are sometimes called um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, kind of territorial angels. It's in Daniel when he talks about the the prince of the prince king of Persia. of Persia and the prince of Greece. Uh, you get it in all the intertestamental stuff. Um, uh, I've got a, a bunch of references to church fathers who talk about that. So when they when they're reading Daniel. Um, I quote a number of church fathers who say, well, this is what uh, Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 32. <laughs> and so th they're seeing this pretty clearly and they're tracking with it. Mm -hmm. um, I have anything else to say about that? I've been talking for a while. That's probably it. <laughs> okay. well, one thing that I wanted to bring up is when you're reading through this, uh, it, it makes alive chapters and verses that you've never really considered in that way before. Mm. So you hit, into Gideon who destroys idols. You get into the conversation about Elijah setting up a, uh, a sacrificial battle between Baal and Yahweh and beating the pants off of Baal. But you've got this entire, this, this entire story that makes a lot more sense when you realize that there are spirit beings behind Baal. 
or Baal, as most people will say, mm -hmm. or Asher Asherah, or all of these other things. And so you have this this um, vignette of Elijah saying, "Hey, my God can beat your God," and then all of the well, how many how many prophets of Baal were there? Oh, I don't remember the number off the top of my head. There were a lot. <laughs> there were a lot. And yeah. so these these guys are are setting setting up their their thing. They're they're dancing around. They're cutting themselves. They're trying to get this God to take the sacrifice and do the the same thing that God, the true God, can do. And then Elijah has the has the gall to say, "Okay, I'm setting mine up. Get me some water, some buckets of water." And for the, he, the burnt he, sacrifice, right? Where they're, he, they're calling yeah. on God to burn it. Yeah, yeah, to burn a sacrifice. And he, Elijah says, "Bring me some water." And he gets multiple jugs of water and just douses the heck out of the sacrifice, hmm. so that it couldn't burn. It's not something that could be burned. And so, as the worshiper worshippers of Baal are dancing around their things and cutting themselves and trying to get um, Baal to to set this sacrifice on fire. Elijah's going, oh, where's your God? Is he is he in the bathroom? Is he pooping? Is that what he's doing? That is what the translation means. Is this what he, he's saying? Is he busy? He goes, is he on the toilet? Is he is he too busy for this? And then he calls and says, God, burn this up. And it's gone, all of it. The rocks are even burnt up. And so when you start to see that there's a, a different dimensional reality mm -hmm. and you start to see that you know these I, I mentioned thor because that's the those that happens to be the pantheon i know the most about is the norse pantheon mm -hmm. and you start to see these as very real beings trying to deceive people and trying to get them to do sacrifice look at molech who had children fed fed into his belly and burnt to a crisp look at all of these different these different gods and the fact that there were rituals to have these gods inhabit these statues these idols and then you and then you go into the the eucharist and the idea of god being in the bread and the the cup and you have like there's so many instances in the bible that turn everyone else's idea of what god or gods are on its head like you look at in particular the norse pantheon that uh, the whole world was created out of a, a giant that Odin killed and then he him and his brothers killed and he used his skull to make the sky. He used his blood to make the oceans. He used his teeth for this or that. And then there's this Jewish, very ancient, early Jewish pushback, which was there's a God that's love that created out of nothing, that created all of all himself and he spoke it. He didn't have to fight. He didn't have to kill. He didn't have to destroy. He brought it out of nothing. And so you have all of these different things. And if you start reading the Bible after reading this, one of the big ones for me was there's that verse. I can't remember where it is, but um, it's when, when Peter gets his name and uh, Jesus says, um, he's, he talks about how uh, the church, you know, build this church and the, and the gates of hell won't prevail. And you're, you, when you start thinking about, the gates of hell and some of the other color that's brought in when you're starting looking into the intertestamental period, how these people saw the land, how these people praise their gods by creating Babel was like creating a, an Eden on earth where they could meet with the gods. Mm -hmm. And this is why they didn't, why God was so against it. But then you, you, you hear that verse about ga the gates of hell will not prevail. And then you start thinking, Oh, 
gates are defensive. They aren't, they're not aggressive maneuvers. They try to stop. And you see that when Jesus is talking about how the church will overcome the gates of hell, it's an aggressive move. It's a war. It's, it's being able to defeat the, the devil. And so we're we're, we're charging on enemy territory, right? Yeah. And I love that. You know how, how much more alive the scripture gets when you start to see the cast of characters for what they are rather than these sterilized things that make people feel comfortable. Like I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so much more excited. Well, that's what I want to, I want to quickly mention or go back to a comment. Uh, op Sison. <laughs> either way they said stories were used to pass morals and teaching on to kids. You know, Jordan Peterson, the Canadian druggy guy, he's spoke a lot about this, you know? Yeah. I had to say it either way. Uh, you know, the concept of, you know, these, these stories existed in order to, to, you know, make your culture this way, to hold culture together, traditions, everything. Um, but that's kind of, kind of mixing the effect with the purpose, you know, mm-hmm. because there is this big push to sterilize the scriptures, to make them just that, you know, it's, it's just moral stories. It's just, it's especially the last 200 years, you know, pull out the supernatural stuff and just leave that. And, you know, the effects of it, you can look at the effects, and Jordan Peterson is exactly right about the effects of something like the Bible, the effects it has on culture, on society, that it's had on the Western world, and the very good, good effects, okay? But at the same time, we can't reduce it to that. We can't reduce the purpose down to the effects, you know, because the purpose is to share the truth, to open our minds and our eyes to all this incredible stuff going on. It's God revealing the reality of the fabric of the universe to us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's a lot there, and it's it's exciting. It's not just children's moral stories. Well, and, and I think too, you know, we talked. You mentioned Jefferson earlier, but um, part of the goal of of what well, what some people were trying to do in the Enlightenment was to build this rationalistic kind of God, this deist God um, yep. that could be thought of as more universal. You disconnect them from story, you disconnect them from specific religions, and then what you have left is this idea of a creator, maybe he'll judge bad people one day, but let's not tack on too much. You know, we don't we don't want to, you know, have too much that people have to take in. Let's just let's just think let's try to imagine a god that we could imagine ourselves if we just without anything else if we just thought really hard for a while. And um and I think what you sort of see is that you can't really pull this story away from its context. You know, we can recontextualize it. We can try to understand it in our own context and, and apply it in a, in a different place and time, but we're not really going to understand the story unless we read the story in its context. And I do, I do think that's that's really important. And, and in fact, um, um, Cam had talked about the Bible coming alive when you have a more supernatural worldview, you understand some of these, these details. One thing that popped in my mind was, it's a section in uh, Luke chapter 10 where Jesus, uh, uh, sends his disciples out in pairs to preach the gospel in the different parts of, uh, you know, I guess, Palestine. And um, he splits them up and he sends them out. And it gives us the number that they're 72. 72. Yeah, 72. And the reason why it's 72 is because the Septuagint of Genesis 10 splits up the nations a little bit differently and tells us there's 72 nations. That when Je- <laughs> And uh, now there are um, there is an interesting textual variant on that where uh, some of the manuscripts read 70. And it's because they know what, what's going on in Luke 10. They know what, what Luke is trying to say. 
and they're trying to bring it back to the idea of the nations that have been dispersed. And so what Jesus is doing then is he's sending out his disciples. He's beginning to reclaim the nations. And when they come back and they said, you know, uh, that the, even the demons were obeying us, he says, um, well, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And it's this idea that, you know, the, the gates of hell are being pushed against and, and we're on the move and we're winning. And so a lot of this backdrop, it's really important, right? That God is reclaiming the nations. Um, and we don't know that if we don't really understand what's going on in the Old Testament. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it, I, I think trying to disconnect uh, this from the story that it's told in is really going to make the story a lot more lame. Um, but yeah. anyway. <laughs> but it also makes it easier for you to mold God into the God you want. Because the Enlightenment allowed them to mold a god into a god who would uh, bless and direct a Christian nation. You know that that idea, like we're ordained by God to do this this thing. You know, make this constitution, do all these other things. You know, it's a very pliable right. god that you can mold around, as opposed to the real god who's an actual person. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I we we did do this in the spirit of October. So I think we should talk about the Satan, demons, and stuff like that a little bit. Um, so if you were to drill down on your understanding, Cody, of the the Satan, and I, I, I like you putting that definite article in front of it because it, it it's right, <laughs> you know, like it just feels like mm -hmm. you know who I'm talking about, not just some adversary, the adversary, our enemy. Mm -hmm. um, if you could give us a basic understanding of who he is and perhaps who um, his followers, his legion are. I think that that would be a really great place to jump off into some other things. Yeah. So um, I associate Satan with death and destruction because that's primarily what he's interested in. Um, that's what's happening in Genesis 3. He knows uh, what the temptation, what the suggestion that he's making is going to lead to, and he's okay with it. Um, I think uh, Satan is the, the kind of the, the, the typical, uh, well, if I'm going to go down, everything else is going down with me. Um, <laughs> um, I think uh, Satan is a character who's prideful and arrogant. Uh, he wants to be God himself. Um, the relationship he has to these other figures is kind of complicated because while the Old Testament gives us some uh, looks into Satan and we, we read about the rebellious sons of God, um, it doesn't draw a direct line between them. Yeah. Um, and so then the question becomes, uh, how, how does that happen? How do we get from not having a clear line between them to going to the New Testament where we read uh, that all these uh, uh, sons, sons of God who are in rebellion over the nations uh, have Satan as their leader, that Satan says to Jesus, bow down and worship me and I'll give you the nations of the earth because they've been given to me. Um, and <laughs> so there, there are these sort of complicated things to work out. But what I do think that we find is that perhaps it's because of Satan's role as the, the first rebel, the initial rebel. Uh, he seems to get uh, followers behind him, these other spiritual beings. Um, and there begins to develop a hierarchy in the, uh, you know, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? And, and the kind of infernal <laughs> uh, side yeah. of things as well. Um, 
I think, yeah, ultimately what Satan is interested in doing is destroying. I think that's primarily what, what he's wanting to do. He's wanting to undermine uh, what God's purpose is, which is why um, Paul tells us that God was somewhat secretive about his plan, even though he leaves uh, little signs of it all over the Old Testament, uh, because the uh, powers and principalities had to have it hidden from them, because if they would have known what was going on, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Um. So anyway, obviously they they thought that they Satan thought he was doing something pretty uh, important for his side when he had Jesus crucified, but it ended up backfiring. Um, so anyway, yeah. Okay. So, so hold on, help? can you can you tell me what you mean by he had Jesus crucified? Like yes. that was Satan's doing, or yes. Uh, let me pull up the reference from Paul. Can I give me just a second here? Yeah, humanity meets God on Earth, and the first thing they do is kill Him. It sounds sounds very, very much like the fallen humanity that we know. <laughs> yeah, let me find ever because wasn't wasn't the crucifixion part of the plan? Like because of the fall, the I mean, just I, I I'm trying to um, contextually frame this within the idea that everything that happens happens because God has willed it to happen this way. So yes, it, it happens because God has willed it to happen this way, but there are other, other players. So essentially um, God had a purpose in the crucifixion that was different than Satan's purpose in the crucifixion. But what Paul says in first Corinthians two, six through eight, um, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Um, and the word rulers, oh gosh. So there's just the archa and exousia, uh, this language of powers and principalities that is uh, generally applied to these spiritual forces uh, in the New Testament. So that's not mm -hmm. so much in the Old Testament. You can find it a little bit, but it's primarily a New Testament idea. What Paul seems to be saying is that Satan had a purpose. Uh, we also read um, uh, Acts 13, 27, where... Um, uh, Paul says, those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand, uh, they ful fulfilled the scriptures by condemning him. So you have these all these actors who are part of the crucifixion. Um, two of them are bad actors, uh, the spiritual authorities that have been crucified and the human authorities that have been crucified. And the other is God, who's a good actor. Mm -hmm. So um, so anyway, yeah, but but there, everyone has a all, all three of those have a role in the, in the process, though. So this is a part that always sort of got to me and I've, I've had long conversations with others in this regard as well um, about like the role of Judas mm -hmm. in the crucifixion of Christ, because if it is God's will that Jesus be crucified in order that death be defeated and Judas is the facilitator of this, you know, process, mm -hmm. then, you know, is he not, acting according to God's will. And if so, then why do we necessarily view him as a villain? Mm -hmm. And there have been, you know, people who've sort of explored that idea. I know the, um, there's a Scorsese movie that came out in like the eighties, uh, the last, last temptation, mm -hmm. which kind of explored the idea that Judas was actually doing, um, God's will. Mm hmm. Um, and he is vilified to history without any of us knowing that he now I don't necessarily accept that view. Mm -hmm. I just know that it's out there. And sure. so what what I guess where I have my trouble is sort of uh, marrying the two ideas 
of, you know, this being an act of evil. Mm -hmm. Because is it not the act itself that um, liberates man? Sure. So in, in Scorsese's uh, picture, what you might recall is that Judas doesn't want to turn over Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right. But Jesus forces him to do it because Jesus knows that it's part of the plan and it has to happen. Right. So I, I think that that would be the difference as far as I would see it is what is what is the intention of, of the actor? And so mm -hmm. Paul says, you know, um, God had this plan to crucify Jesus in order to defeat death and uh, begin the process of taking back the world from the powers and so on and so forth. Uh, but he says if they had known that that was what they were doing, they never would have done it. <laughs> and so I think, I think I that's, okay. that's the primary okay. difference. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, and, and look at, um, God using the violence of the Babylonians to teach, to put the Jews into exile and to look at all the different points in time. God used the evil of others to do something good or something that that's help that helps. He utilizes the evil of man for good ends. So he he basically he redemption. Tricked, he tr he tricked the devil into saving man. Yeah, yeah. Sort of. I guess knowing what he would do, <laughs> there's something uh, in uh, in Genesis where Joseph talks about uh, his brothers trying to leave him for dead and saying, "What you meant for evil, God meant for good." And so I think the intention is really is probably the most important factor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I would always I always go back to redemption. You know, I I think it it. Uh, what's the word? It just—it sounds a little petty when we when we phrase it as God tricked the devil into doing something for him. <laughs> but the thing is, the worst situations, the worst that humanity can do, God can redeem that. God can mm -hmm, turn mm -hmm, it around mm -hmm. and make it something good, which is what I pray in the midst of the worst tragedies that happen. You know, when I see someone gets hurt or somebody dies or something, or I'm praying for a family, it's always, please, Lord, redeem the situation. You know, use so that kind of it's. It's not that God wanted the bad thing to happen, but it's that I trust that God is strong enough to redeem the situation. And Judas, for example, he could have been redeemed. I have no reason to doubt that. But he judged himself. He he killed he himself. Despond, he you know? despondent and didn't believe that God could forgive him. Exactly. Just like right. Adam and Eve. They judged themselves before God ever did. Imagine okay. if Adam and Eve had, when God came down, they said, Lord, we're so sorry. We, we, ate, the, we ate the fruit. But no, they said, uh oh, we're yucky, we're, we're dirty, got to put on some clothing, cover cover ourselves up, try and cover up the sin. It just, we judge so ourselves. <laughs> let me think, let me, let me, I think I'm understanding something. Let me see if this hits, okay? <laughs> so the martyrs, right? There's the persecutions of the martyrs, and they're all killed in these horrible, horrible ways. But every martyr they killed seemed to make a hundred or a thousand more Christians behind them. And so there is this element of like, I, I always really kind of didn't understand what was meant by God is pleased by the blood of the martyrs. And I'm like, well, that's horrible, right? Like, it's horrible that these people are dying horribly. How are you pleased with this? Is this sort of the same idea that because these martyrs are dying, it's spread, the blood of the martyrs is spreading the Christian religion? And in this way, he's using the violence of man to his ends. Does that the big quote? The big thing that the thing that I think so many people miss, though, like God is so good at redeeming bad situations. 
that there are people who then turn around and say, therefore God caused it for his glory, or right, therefore right. God caused it so that good could come of it. Right. That's not in the character of God that I see in the Bible. And that's not right. in the character of God, the God that I know and the God that is revealed to us through Jesus, you know? But the problem is God is so darn good at redeeming situations for his glory and for our benefit, you know, that, yeah, you can look and say, well, God caused it. It's like, no, that, like, well, to, it's, it's, to give God context, I'm referring good. to myself as I was an atheist looking into this situation or a secular person looking into this situation and saying, well, God is really pleased when people are horribly killed for him. And that always like struck me as like, why would that please you? And so what you're saying is not, and so we, we like, we make God into the bad guy here and yeah. say that, you know, he's pleased it's not with this the act that is good. It's the fruit. That it's he's the right, with. right, right. And it's so that's where I'm God coming can from do in the midst of that. Yeah. Right. So I don't I feel that way now. And I, I do recognize how martyrdom has spread Christianity. And I don't think that God did that to spread Christianity. He just knew that, you know, Christians would be persecuted. And so it was good in his sight that they um, died for the faith. And so that gave them, you know, like I, I, I've seen it referred to as they, they receive a crown in heaven for basically, I guess, being the people who made the religion happen. I think maybe the greatest case study in what you're talking about is Paul, because Paul held the coats of the Pharisees who stoned Stephen. Paul mm -hmm. was, he called himself the chief of sinners for what he did when it came to uh, persecuting the early church. Mm -hmm. And yet, as he was saying this was sin, this was a bad thing, he still recognizes and pushes the good that comes out of him, who is the chief of sinners, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. helped, helped murder people who followed Jesus. And so Paul would not say that, yes, it was great that Stephen died, but he would say, look at what Stephen was able to communicate to the world. Right, okay. Look at what I, you know, I mean, look what he was able to do spreading the gospel past the the borders of Israel. Look at all that happened. And it, because he was at one point stand, standing next to the murderers, facilitating mm -hmm. what they were doing. Does that make sense? And and even so, I guess, so the difference here between like Judas and say um, Peter. Peter is that Peter also betrayed Christ yeah. because he denied him three times. Um, but he then turned I around and said, you know, I've messed up. Please forgive me. I, I you know, repent of this terrible sin. Whereas um, Judas is like, no, that's it. I'm out. And he kills I, himself. I, I love the story of Peter because uh, it, it makes me think of what what's that um, experiment that was done with the dogs? With uh, the Pavlov? where, Pavlov, yeah, the Pavlov's, Pavlov's you know, so the, the dogs heard the bell, they expected a treat. I think so if you if you look at the story of Peter when he denied Christ three times, when he did that third denial, he heard a rooster crow. And so you have to imagine that between the time Jesus died and the time that uh, Jesus met him again, every time he heard the rooster crow, he thought of that moment when he denied and betrayed Jesus. And so mm -hmm. when Jesus meets him, the first, the, the way it goes, he denied 
Jesus three times. And then when Peter meets Jesus, Jesus almost, he undoes that Pavlovian experience for him because he asks, he asks Peter, he says to Peter three times, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he says it the exact same number of times as Peter denied him. And there's this beautiful symmetry in the fact that Peter was open to reconciliation. He was open to redemption and that Jesus knew that it would take a little bit of pushing and a little bit of repetition to get him where he needed to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. Let me, uh, yeah. Speaking back to what you're saying about atheists, you know, especially as an atheist looking at like, how could a God do that? You know? Um, Yeah. That was always a big hang up for me. Well, it should be, it should be because that paints a very bad image of God. Right. But, you know, fundamentalists, fundamentalist Christians and atheists, they agree on that, you know, on the fact that God basically uh, authors evil. They won't admit it, but in terms of what they teach, they do make God responsible for evil. They have this idea that God is in control, God and people are more or less passive and God's moving us, us along. And they're like, I don't know why God took him. It's like, no, he drove off a hill. He made a stupid decision. Or that person got raped. It's not because God said, well, time for this person to get raped so that I can do this other thing. No, that's not the way God works. And when we make God responsible for that, we smear his character. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we shouldn't do that, obviously. And it does a huge disservice to the character of God when you have fundamentalist Christians, and especially more on the Calvinist side, who give that impression to atheists especially and give them fuel for their their, uh, false views view of God. As opposed mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. the God who is all powerful, yes, so powerful and so good and so invested in our lives that He's willing to redeem even the worst situations mm-hmm. without being responsible for them happening in the first place. And I think that's what's so cool about learning about this, about going in. Uh, Cody has actually written articles for Rethinking Hell, and we'll be talking to um, Chris Date at the end of the month. But looking into hell and how it's the traditional view of eternal conscious torment and all of this. And when you start looking into the word and you start digging into the scripture about what this means, and then an atheist says to you, well, you believe that uh, God tortures humans for all of eternity for, for stealing a stick of gum at this point, I can go son to slake his anger. Right. This and, is the and perception. God's sitting up there with his hammer, like I just want to smash him so bad. I want to smash him so bad. It's like so yeah, out there, Jesus. Ah, ah. And, and that's made a bl- so blood cool. sacrifice of his own child in order to um and so what's been explained to me is that it, he he willed himself into a human body in order that death be defeated, undoing the initial fall. Like that what was done in the garden because of the snake is undone on the cross. Yeah. And that I guess where and I kind of threw us off track because you guys were talking about how it was the powers of evil that actually crucified Christ. And so that was where I kind of got confused because I was like, wait a minute, my my newer understanding of this is that God has made himself into a man and placed himself on this cross, ascended willingly onto this cross. Yeah. In order to um, undo death. Right, right. Yeah. We condemn ourselves. People miss that. 
Cain condemned himself. Remember, he he killed Abel, okay? And then God comes down and Cain goes, oh, everyone's going to kill me. They're going to hunt me down. You know, I'm, I'm in trouble. I'm going to die. It, what? He, his brothers, his, his sisters, his parents, Adam and Eve are going to like hunt him down. Who, who's he talking about? You know, he murdered his brother, saw himself as worthy of death, condemned himself. And then he gave that, then when he talked to God, he was talking out of his new identity as I'm a person who deserves to die because I've done these things. That's what humans do. We do what is wrong and we condemn ourselves, okay? What the crucifixion was ultimately for us, it's not that God is a angry God who just has to smash stuff, you know? And like sinners in the hands of an angry God, you know, thy foot shall surely slip, you know? And God's just just waiting to, to swallow us up forever, you know? And then Jesus comes and God's like, well, this will have to do ah, and smash him instead. We're the ones who long for justice. We're the ones who buy gobs of self-help books to try and fix ourselves. We're the ones who lay awake at night thinking of the things we did 20 years ago, feeling bad about those things. We Yo. condemn ourselves, and it causes us to flee from God. We can't right. be near God, and it's not because God doesn't want to be with us. He wants to be with us, but we flee from him because of that garbage inside of us. And that's the beauty <laughs> of the gospel. That's the beauty of what Jesus did. Jesus said, hey, all that stuff, all that stuff, you know, that you feel you deserve, I'm taking it away. I'm going to take the worst uh, everything, okay? I'm going to take it as far away as the east is from the west. How far is that? I mean, it's an infinite distance. That's what Jesus did. He took away our guilt and our shame. <laughs> you know, the crucifixion was for us. Mm -hmm. And it, it allows us to let that stuff go and let Jesus take it away. And that's, that's what salvation is. It's when you literally give that stuff to Jesus. And then without that garbage, suddenly we can see ourselves as God sees us and we can enter into a, a real relationship with him that starts now and goes on into eternity. That's incredible. And I just really like it that when an atheist says that to me, I can go, oh no, I don't believe that. I just love it because because I had bought all the things I'd bought all of the the different little human bits that were repackaged for control in some cases. And I can go, but that's not who he is, because first John four, eight says that he's love. And anyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And so that if it doesn't agree with the perfect image of God, that was Jesus then you're reading it wrong. Mm -hmm. Right on. Uh, Cody, so, you haven't talked in a second. <laughs> right. I, I talked a lot. I talked a lot early on. So I, was other people I feel like I really threw the, uh, that my like limited understanding of this topic really threw the topic off of what you guys were talking about. So I do apologize no, for that. You were supposed to but, like, no, <laughs> you've um, been wonderful. What are the, I guess my question would be then. So the crucifixion happened death is defeated, evil is defeated. Um, I have come to believe that God is taking his time as far as the end of ages goes in order to give us time to repent. And um, I'm not sure what role these sort of bodiless powers play in our lives now after the cross. And I guess um, where I was kind of coming into this conversation is thinking, yeah, you know, there's a lot of evil in the world. So clearly these things are still 
affecting us, trying to keep us from repentance, which is sort of our key into the kingdom, right? I mean, to repent of our our human ways, to repent of our shame and our our uh, sins and these things, they're still playing this role and sort of trying to throw us off of that. Well, Are these the same beings you're talking about? Elohims and, and seraphims and various things are, are these still in play? Are we battling these things through our sins? Or like, how does that apply? I think that one of the most important things to realize is that the, I forget the where, where the verse is, but it talks about how the devil is like a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may destroy. Peter. And so that is the impetus behind, beyond, behind the devil, behind these demons. Uh, they are here to kill, steal, and destroy. And they mm. are tied, like Cody said, to regional and national state powers. So the war in Iraq, what's mm -hmm. going on in Yemen, what's going on across the world where there's great violence and strife and destruction, mm -hmm. they're the ones that are pushing for this. They're the ones who are whispering in the ears. Wow, holy shit. That's a really big holy holy shit moment. <laughs> so that that's what we're fighting against. We're not. Yeah. It, it's it's people like to kind of make the demon thing like oh oh it's Reagan in the uh, the Exorcist. It's to destroy. I mean, and there is some of this. There is oppression. There are people who have these issues, and it's very individual. But the big plan is to kill as many people as possible and to try to thwart their connection to Jesus. Can we do anything about that? Or are we just like, that's going to happen and there's nothing we can do about that? That's well, a good question. Yeah. Well, Jesus said when his disciples preached the gospel, he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. <laughs> so I, I think that that's an indication of, of what we can do about it. I, th I think the primary way that we fight the powers is to preach the gospel. Um and and I think to preach the the biblical gospel, not to compromise on some kind of a nationalistic gospel that uh, mm -hmm. that doesn't really take seriously what the Bible has to say about nations and territorial powers. The kingdom of God, which is on the mark on the march, uh, tearing down the uh, the gates of hell, right? Yeah. Well, and and, and if living, you, if go ahead, I was going to say living like Jesus, because yeah. by living like Jesus, we're living a contrast to that way of thinking that that violent that power hungry you know inhuman way i mean it's no surprise that it's the governments of the world it's the powers on the earth who are the ones who cause the most damage the most death the most destruction that is the least human uh things in the world you know the, those organizations those ones who do that horrific stuff that's inhuman jesus is the most human you know and we are a the best example of humanity when we're most like Jesus, living as a mm -hmm. contrast to that yucky world powers that that think that they're going to destroy the earth before Jesus comes back and redeems it, you know. So well, that's what we're so digging. Jesus digging all down into like our personal shame and stuff like that really doesn't do us any good in that regard. Then not at all because then we're just not going to like go out and do the thing we we're supposed to do, which is like preaching the gospel. And instead, we're wallowing in like personal shames and things of that nature. I'm having a moment, you guys. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> to be like Jesus, 
um, Ryan is right. And that's something I, I pulled up because I wanted to talk about the specific point, which is in the beginning, Eden was that perfect point where heaven met earth. It was, if, if there was a Venn diagram of heaven and earth, it was overlapped. And so at the fall, that perfect connection was shattered. And it talks about in Second uh, Peter, I want to say, that uh, Jesus was a tabernacle that, that came onto earth. And so he is this, and if you know anything about the tabernacle, that was the temple before the temple, and they were a nomadic people. And so that temple moved, and so there was a holy place made every time that it moved. And so when Jesus came to earth, he took, his, he took himself around and that tabernacle around with him and created new holy spaces. And then when we became Christians, it's our calling to take, because we become tabernacles, we're temples of the Holy Spirit, and we travel and we create these holy spaces wherever we are. And when we preach the gospel, when we tell people about Jesus, when we tell people that there's more than what we have right now, we start creating these little pockets of heaven on earth. And eventually, at the end, the resurrection, when God makes heaven and earth become one and we're fully restored, it'll be back to the way it should be. But our job is to walk around, to go out into all nations and preach the gospel and create little spaces of holiness where people can find freedom from what's killing them. Because that's what sin does. It kills. Okay, so remember, we didn't have this conversation on air, um, but I was asking you afterward about Acts. And like, because it says that you are, it, it's not faith alone. It's like, at, like your faith and your acts together. Yeah. That do that. And I asked you if like Trans. prayer was acts. Yeah. Like works. Yeah. Works. Thank you. Not acts. I don't know why I was thinking. Like, but like acts of good, like good works. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like giving to charity and like um, things of that nature. Does this actually like, compute against these they're talking about like the war in iraq you know what i'm saying well, like well we are only able to affect so there is a butterfly effect to it so there's more that we can do than, than what's just immediately around us but what we have and we are broadcasting so even though there aren't that many people watching right this moment there are people who may hear this and they're hopefully if god is good and he is there will be little tabernacles built after people hear about who he is and what he did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so even though we have a limited ability, we have all of the authority to push Jesus into these places and to create holy, holy zones and to create heaven on earth, to create new Edens. And there's so much that I want to talk about, especially about Eden. I want to come back and talk about Eden, Cody. And I want to talk about how these people built Edens and how Babylon, uh, Babel was in Eden and how somehow these magical pyramids are all over the world and they happen to be built in this specific line and they happen to, to kind of have that same feel as the, the towers of Babel and the trying to get to God and how to meet with the gods and how this is obviously so bigger. There. There's so <laughs> much to talk about. <laughs> is this that Star Forts Tartarian thing? Do you I, know what I'm talking about? I don't know. I'm Probably not, ignore me. Term. Never mind. <laughs> but we, we, we other, have other stuff. We have the ability to create a new world. 
and it's small and it's individual and it can grow and it can do big and beautiful things. But we're looking forward to the resurrection. We're look at Jesus's ministry rebirth. Mm -hmm. Jesus wasn't the head of some multinational organization, you know, that was affecting political change and dealing with billions of dollars of donated money. And, you know, Jesus was a dude who was followed by, you know, a number of folks and he traveled around helping people like one-on-one -on -one, work just mm -hmm. nonstop. And Jesus's ministry was all about contrasting his himself with the world, you know, right. Um, Matthew 20 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, and that's where uh, James and John's mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, you know, um, uh, when you're in your glory, you know, can my son sit on your right and your left hand? You know, the two places of, of power, you know, can my sons have the power in your kingdom? You know, and, you know, as you could imagine, the other disciples then go, hey, wait, wait a second, why did, they get the, why did they get the place of power? But it says, when the other disciple heard this, they were angry. And then starting in verse 25, it says, Jesus called to them and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, okay? They lord it over them, you know? Mm -hmm. they, they exercise power over people, all right? And those in high positions use their authority, their power over them. But it must not be this way with you. Jesus is saying, we're a contrast to that way. The power that using exercising power over people, force, violence over people. Well, you're a contrast to that. It must not be this way with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just mm -hmm. as the Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know? Like mm -hmm. that's that's what we're called to do. We're called to also we're called to continue that ministry of Jesus being that contrast in the world to the people we come across, you know, the every the actual little people. It doesn't have to be some huge big thing because if we're following Jesus, we're living as a contrast to that that big powerful structure, you know, bearing down on people. Which is what like you're referring to as these entities being given the nations so yeah. that working what kind within of horrible demon is is over america is my question what kind of horrible demon but Seriously. so if i understand it from this con from what's being explained to me here there couldn't ever be anything in charge of it but a demon that if it's this big like national like country kingdom what have you it doesn't seem like if if these things are being given the nations, we're told, you know, the That's kingdom. Like Cody's, are, yeah, Cody's is, book is called I, Fight the Powers. <laughs> that sums it up. Like the powers are that that is comes from evil. That's just the way it is. So yeah. am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, and, and it's it's kind of a multifaceted thing because we do have that stuff about the sons of God being given the nations and being corrupted. But the New Testament also reminds us about Satan's position. And so you know, we, we talked about Satan telling Jesus, I can give you all the nations you want. <laughs> I can give you all the kingdoms you want. They're, they're in my because power. Because they're, they're mine. Yeah. Right. And then, and then you, you cut to um, John in Revelation, and he, he describes Satan as a, um, a seven-headed dragon with, horn, with uh, crowns on each head. And, and a crown represents power, and seven is, is fullness. <laughs> and and you see Satan giving uh, giving power to the beast, so Satan is the one who has the power to give. 
So I, I think that that puts political power in a really kind of difficult place everything for Christians. Just, everything just came full circle. <laughs> I think I kind of get it. I think I kind of get what's being said now. Yeah. Okay. And I it started well, I, off real wild for me because it was <laughs> angels and demons and creatures. And I'm like, what the hell are you guys talking about? Mm-hmm. When you frame it in the context of like, I've never believed that a power structure had anything but evil behind it. So that makes sense. That makes total sense to me. Look at their, their look at their fruit. Look at what they produce. I mean, you can make the case that God has given some authority to human governments. If you look okay. at Romans 12 and 13, okay? In Romans 12, God tells us, hey, don't you repay evil for evil, okay? Vengeance is mine. You know, I will repay, says the Lord. And then in chapter 13, God, or Paul writes specifically about human government. It says that God has given them authority to which the conservatives and the, whether you're progressive or not, you know, they say, oh, there, you see, God has given authority to human governments there. So their authority comes from God. Therefore you have to follow them. Stop. It's conditional authority. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's the authority to punish evildoers. So if they're not punishing evildoers, if they're punishing the good people, if they're stealing from, you know, the regular folks, if they're doing other stuff other than punishing evildoers, where's that authority coming from? I mean, it's not coming from God. God didn't give them authority to do that, which means they are the evildoers. You heard about in Romans 12, where God says, don't repay evil for evil. You know, I will repay. Romans 13, more than anything, it's a condemnation of basically every human government you've seen. But I've never also seen an effort to overthrow governments necessarily go very well. Cause I'm think about like the French revolution, the Russian revolution. I think the American revolution to an extent is an exception to that to an extent. Um, well, well, violence because, begets violence. Yeah. Those yeah. Who because, by the sword die by the sword. Jesus said it himself. Yeah, yeah. This isn't going right. to stop until Jesus comes back. Yeah, so what, what I always kind of replace power with more power, <laughs> right? Right, right. So I yeah. always kind of took that to mean um, not necessarily that you have to follow every whim of every state official because obviously that would lead you to do evil, but that don't presume to think that you're going to be able to overthrow the state, you know, because you're not going to whatever you're doing when you get in control is not going to be any better than what the state does. It may in fact be it's worse. It's not our job. It's the one ring. Yeah. No. If I can, uh, I, if, just let me have it. I'm sure we could use it. Yeah. What's his? What was his? Uh, Boromir. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I just want to remind you of um, Matthew five nine in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And I think that that is something that is important to meditate on, because. Peace is what God wants. That's why there's a Sabbath. Peace is the lack of killing, the lack of destruction. He is the opposite of the devil who is there to destroy. And so when you are a peacemaker, you are called the children of God because you look like your daddy. And there's something beautiful about that. And I think that's something we need to think about especially contrasted with the sons of God, the powerful beings exercising authority and destroying people on the earth, you know? Like, we're th- the peacemakers are the true children of God, the ones who are actually represent living in his image. 
That's why uh, I think it's important when you hear people talking about taxation saying how it's good because Jesus said to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you, you read that verse, you read that passage, and you, you hear all these different takes on it. But I think that the most important thing you can take from it, besides the fact that when you know Jesus brought asked them to bring a coin to him, and they said uh, they brought him a coin, and he said, "Whose image is this engraved in?" And he said, "They said Caesar's." And he said, mm-hmm. "Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's." And so when I was reading that years ago. I had this thought, what do we have in our possession that is in the image of God? It's us. That's our job is to be imagers of God. And in that moment, it was in a way a concession because the government is evil. They will jail you. They will kill you if you don't pay your taxes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the mission that Jesus had for us, the mission to restore the world to what it's supposed to be and to reconnect with nature as it was meant to be, to reconnect with God as is the ideal, is so much more important than a couple of dollars in your pocket. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so we are we just hit two hours which is a long episode so uh there's some stuff that i still want to talk about but i i don't think anyone's going to listen past this point so it's probably not a good idea so um i do want to talk about this again cody and ryan let's do this again and dig into some other places because just having episodes where we can dig into different theological areas and dig into them from ways that are not typically talked about we're going to be doing that throughout this next week uh cody introduced me to a guy named scott johnson who's an exorcist and so we're going to talk to him about exorcism and how that looks in the now and then following that his which i i knew chris date before but i didn't realize that cody was a friend of chris date who does rethinking hell we're going to talk about hell like there's a lot going on and i want to do this more so let's do this more uh if y'all are down for that (laughs) Okay. Sounds like fun, man. Um, but I think that what we should probably do is ask Jessica if she has any last questions, and then I can go through my silly stuff. <laughs> I um, I appreciate you guys dumbing things down to my level. I know maybe you wanted to talk about a little more high-minded theological concepts that I wasn't, you know, I don't know. I was kind of getting drugged behind the cart on. <laughs> so I do appreciate sort of the breakdown um, to help me understand. I um, I have some reading to do. I definitely intend to uh, read Cody's work uh, and see if I can sit down with my computer and my Bible and see if I can actually work out some of what was, was talked about here. And so that the next time we have this conversation, I'm a little more educated on some of the terms that you guys use, but um, for my purposes, I'm just really grateful that um, you brought it to a place where I could I could actually climb on the cart. <laughs> like, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thanks for bringing us down to earth. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I also want to be the uh, the first person to wish Cam a happy birthday. 
Yeah. <laughs> three minutes. It's three minutes in. Happy birthday, Cam. I am now 33 years old, which I think is a special date because whether or not the timing and the calendars are correct, I've always been told that Jesus did the last year of his ministry as, as a 33-year-old, and I feel like that's a special year. So I'm going to live it that way. Yeah. Very excited about that. I'm old. I'm old now. I have white in my beard, and I'm excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so as it as it turns out, um, I do want to get into the meatier parts. We got into some meaty stuff. We also got some, some milk and some uh, simple explanations in. This is Christianese for... You know, babies drink milk before they eat meat. And so sometimes you just need a cheeseburger. And that's what that's what tonight was. We had a little bit, a little bit of milk, a little bit of meat. Um, is there anything else you want to say, uh, guys, that you want to share uh, before I get to the, the, the big questions and tell people where to find you? That was a blast. Covered so much more stuff than I had, you know come into this thinking we were going to talk about and boy was it worth it you know got some really really good 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 stuff out of this episode yeah thanks for having me here i, I don't know anything else i don't have any other opinions so i, I think i'm done <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a really it was a big delight i i've i've known ryan for a while and i've enjoyed talking to him this is my first interaction with cody and i really enjoyed talking to you man thank you oh, for thank coming you. today thank you guys for having me all right. And His so, book, Fight the Powers, it's great. Like I read it in a day, I think. You. you know, it's it's very it's it's not, you know, you can read like something like Michael Heiser. Yeah, and it's so intense, you know. But you read Cody's and it it hits the main points, but you can move through it, you know. It doesn't you're not moving slowly, you know. Yeah. Would really highly recommend it. I, uh, I, I hate reading books that take forever to say the same things over and over again. So I try to say it once clearly and then move on. <laughs> Amen. I value that extremely. So both of Cody's books, Unhitched and uh, Fight the Powers, are in the description wherever you're watching or listening to this. So click on that, grab a copy. Um, but here, here, here are the questions, the questions of every episode. Um, one... It's my birthday. So, Ryan, what's your favorite thing about me? What's my favorite thing about you? Ah, yes. yes. I forgot that you were going to ask that. I should have thought about that. <laughs> I don't always. I said the beard twice so far because that's always the most, you know, thing. I appreciate that your show is not a, a liberty show. That's what I appreciate about you. The fact that you bring actual creative content to the world, you know, you don't just repeat what everybody else, you know, uh, bounces around especially in the in the, the so-called liberty groups you know that just gets so tiring like you can only hear how many hundred people repeat the exact same line and you yeah. on twitter or on your podcast you actually present actual original content imagine that <laughs> the world needs more of that well thank you and i'm going to ask jessica just because it's my birthday i think she did it last week or the week before maybe but huh. uh what i won't I... ask you cody because you just met me I mean, you can if you'd like, but, you know, I won't hold you to that. My favorite thing about Cam, and not a lot of people know this, is that um, after pretty much every single episode we've ever done, Cam continues to spend three-ish hours talking to me about Jesus, about scripture, filling in areas for me that I don't know about, because I am 
basically a baby crawling for the first time. And um, he has been pivotal to my education and um, has given, and he always gives me a jumping off point so I can go learn more for myself. And I, um, you are an invaluable resource to me. I, I, I find you as valuable as every book I have <laughs> on this uh, shelf behind me in, in my very good friend, Cam. So yeah, I, I appreciate that you are you. And it's, it's, it's really very mutual. And I told someone this the other day, but it's like talking to you has been, I've had to challenge so many things or rethink things or clarify how I talk about things. And it's been so very helpful to me, but you don't have to answer that Cody, but I will say, this is the question of the show. Ask him the hope the, question. That's what I'm doing. And oh, so, I'll okay. start with Cody. <laughs> so people are sad. We live in a very depressed world, especially now with COVID, with mandates, with people losing their jobs, friends and family losing their lives uh, because of this. And so uh, we used to talk about it in the, in the form of the white pill, but I think that it's bigger than that because I feel like that's a very political kind of concept. Mm -hmm. So my question is what is something, and like I tell everyone, it could be global, local, state, personal. What is something that gives you hope and motivation to carry on that you would want to share with the audience? Well, I, for me, it's, it's, I guess it's two things. It's the resurrection, uh, which I think makes everything worthwhile. Um, and then uh, on a more personal level, I guess I'd say my kids, you know, looking at my kids mm -hmm. makes me feel kind of hopeful for, for the, where the world could go. Uh, and, you know, just seeing that, that, that little image of God and that reminder of, of God's love and creativity uh, is definitely uh, something that gives me a sense that uh, despite all the bad stuff, it can't be all that bad. <laughs> There's got to be something bigger and better. <laughs> awesome. And how about you, Ryan? Uh, you know, my little homestead here is my biggest, you know, white pill these days. Like, Last week, we ordered a little bit of sod because our our house was put on this clay, sand clay mix. And yeah. as soon as we moved in, it started thing. like washing <laughs> away. Yeah. And uh, bad. You know, you don't want the stuff under your house washing away. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we got this idea. You will put this four foot strip of sod around the house, you know, just so there's something there to kind of hold everything together. So we ordered it, but something went wrong and we got... Uh, two to four times as much sod as we meant to get. So we ended up with nine pallets of sod sitting out in, or around the house. And we're like, holy goodness, what the heck are we going to do with this stuff? But, you know, we spent uh, four and a half days outside turning the ground, breaking it up, and, you know, carrying these things, plopping them down. And it seems so silly, you know, sod. I mean, come on, it's freaking grass. There's mm -hmm. a billion, we could be setting up the chicken coops or building the garden or doing all these other things. But you know what? We were taking this land and as even if it is just sod, we were, we were changing. We were making it ours. We were tending the garden per se. Mm. And it mm -hmm. just felt so darn good. You know, like the world might be falling apart, but you know, we're, we're tending our little garden. We're, uh, you know, we're taking this land and we're homesteading. We're making it ours in Jesus name. And boy, does that feel good. And with that, I'll tell people where to find you. Um, let me 
click the buttons over here to make it as clear as possible. If you'd like to follow Cody on Twitter, you can follow him follow him at Cantus Firmus CC. It is in the description, so you don't have to worry about spelling on that. Um, he also, <laughs> Cantus Firmus comes from the name of his podcast, which you can find on uh, Cantus dash or hyphen. No, that's not, yeah, Cantish-Firmus.com, or I, I found it on all the podcatchers, so he's, he's good there. He also has a book called Unhitched, and a book that we referenced a lot in this episode called Fight the Powers. Both of those are linked below as well. Um, is there any other place that you want people to find you, or is that comprehensive? Um, I would, not at my house or anything, I would appreciate a little bit of privacy. <laughs> just, just give him a little bit of privacy. If you want to go to someone's house, go to Ryan's. Yeah, no, the, uh, uh, no, the, the podcast, uh, the website, that's all, that's all good. Uh, and yeah, you can look me up on Amazon. I, I've, I've got a couple, a few other books as well, but those are my two recent, most recent ones, Fight the Powers and uh, Unhitched. And uh, I try to, like, like I said, I, I try to write uh, short but informative books. Um, so you can, if there's something you're interested in, uh, the book that you pick up for me should be, should be able to get through it. And it's pretty dense, uh, not, not dense, densely packed with information, but not, hopefully not like, you know, hard to follow. And Ryan Nutrient said that your rich. citations are great. So there's there's plenty to, to jump off from as well. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and so Ryan, who it's been a while since you've been on the show. So let me remind people, Ryan and I uh, run our little network of podcasts, the MLGA network together. Uh, thankfully, with the new job situation that I'm in, he's taken over some of the editing responsibilities because I was dying. Um but if you want to check his show out, he he has a show called Technoagorist, and you can find it at his website, technoagorist.com. You can find it at mlganetwork.com, and he's also on all of the podcatchers. If you'd like to see his occasional tweets about sod, you can do that at Technoagorist. Learn about grass and homesteading <laughs> there. Um, and one, one other thing that I, I remembered today before I was setting up the notes was that he wrote a little online book for people who are interested in uh, the the gifts of the spirit and the charismatic nature of God, uh, which is, uh, you know, you may get a warning because he hasn't secured that website yet. But if you want to read it's that, it's just an it's... old blogger blog <laughs> from many, many years ago, probably 10 years ago at this point. <laughs> but it's called it's how to pray in tongues.com. So if you want to learn a little bit about the charismatic side of things, that is definitely a good place to start. And so with that, I will remove your lovely faces from the chat. You can stay and hang out and talk later for longer if you'd like. If not, you know, do what you want. But I'm going to tell everyone where to find the rest of our stuff now. So thank you both for coming on. I do want to do this again. So uh, we've, we, we have some dates left in December. And maybe we'll find a nice uh, conversation to have, maybe about Advent and uh, Christmas and stuff like that. We'll see. Sound good? That's great, gents. Awesome. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. And so for the rest of you uh, wonderful people, uh, you know where to find me on Twitter at Cam Harless. You know where to find Jessica at Soup Canarchist. It's soup season, so it's the time to look at her Twitter account. I am going to challenge her now to post at least two soup recipes on her Twitter per week. I'm not saying oh, per day. That's such I a need, good idea. <laughs> I need I need I need two per week so yeah. that people can learn more about the the joys of soup. Um, yeah. Beyond that, 
If you're if you're listening to us, you can watch us instead. YouTube.com slash the mad ones. You can also find us at Rockfin, which is rockfin.com slash the mad ones. If you want to help our journey along and give us a little money to keep this thing going, it's more expensive than it used to be. If you want to help, we have a Patreon. And on our Patreon, we have all of our past episodes. We keep 10 in the queue for you to listen to. But if you want to listen to the last, the previous hundred and three. You can go to patreon.com slash the mad ones and sign up and you'll get a special RSS feed that you can put into your podcatcher and listen to all of them. The early ones are not very good, but you can see my progress. Um, beyond that, if you want a shirt, if you want to rep the shirt at the Tom Woods 2000th episode event this weekend, which I'll be at if you're interested in meeting me for some reason, I don't recommend it. I'm hairy, so thus stinky. Um <laughs> You can do that at wearethemadones.com slash store. We, you can also listen to the show there or on any podcatcher. We're also on Odyssey. So uh, the, the link is not so clean there. Uh, but if you go to our website, wearethemadones.com, we have a link to all of this except for our Twitter accounts. Uh, right. You can just type that in. That's on you. Uh, so with that, I think I'm done. Is there anything I'm, I neglected to mention? Um, you know, you can uh, just... Remember to use our promo codes, the Mad Ones or Bad Ones, at um, Run Your Mouth Coffee or uh, Righteous Felon uh, Beef Jerky, respectively. And yep. that is also a good way to support our channel and get awesome, tasty products for yourself. Oh, right. also, don't forget to uh, hit, if you're watching us on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. Um, also hit the notification bell so that you know when new episodes come out. And hit that like button because that bumps us up out on the up on the algorithm and uh we'd eventually like to monetize this biatch so help us out it would be great it would be great be if great. we could do that so with that uh we thank you for being here and as always uh you get to be the light of the world so go light it up uh -huh.